in the mental health field too often. We've made it seem as if it's just in your head. Just in your head. The landlord can hijack the rent by 20%. That impacts people's mental health. We can have a profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to It's Not Just in Your Head. Uh, I'm Max, and Harriet, who are you? Hi, I'm Harriet Farad, Dr. (laughs) Harriet Farad, and I'm really glad to be here with our guest, Kevin Gallagher. Just going to say a big thank you to our patrons, First Winter, Sarah Turner, and Rebecca Johns. And of course, shout out to Liam for helping us with the editing and social media. Also, if anybody wants to send us reactions or comments, thoughts, criticisms about anything contained in the podcast today, you can email us at itsnotjustinyourhead at gmail. Dot com and if you want to support us and help us kind of like you know keep doing the podcast uh you can go to patreon.com slash it's not just in your head and we and love you even if you can't afford to to contribute we understand but we and we don't love you ev- anymore but we sure do appreciate your patron contributions yeah. so thank you yeah you're a cool human no matter what yeah yeah so today we have um a a very interesting human named Kevin Gallagher, who is a former adjunct professor of psychology and sociology at Point Park University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He's worked in a lot of different uh, community health settings, including four years with the award-winning street medicine program, Operation Safety Net. His work focuses on rethinking mental health, substance use, and addiction from a sociological and social justice perspective. And he's currently a writer for Mad in America, and works in Medicaid clinical quality program development. And just a comment on Mad in America for listeners that aren't familiar. I think the website is just madinamerica.com. And uh, we might refer to it as MIA, the Mad, Mad in America. It's a kind of, it's a, a program and project that is promoting alternatives within our field, Harriet Her- in my field and Kevin's field, psychiatry, psychology, psychotherapy, and so on kind of goes against the mainstream profit-driven and um, like hyper-medicalized viewpoints that kind of prevail within our field. So uh, that's actually how we got hooked up with Kevin, by looking at some of his articles and having an email exchange. And so we're here to talk with him today about addiction. So hi, Kevin. Hi. <laughs> How's it going? <laughs> hi, everyone. Um, and um Harriet Max, uh, thank you again for having me on. Um, and then, yes, so currently, um, especially in speaking about uh, the, the writing I do, um, I am uh, doing a, a series for Mad in America, um, an American history of drugs and addiction. Um, and like you were saying, it's uh, it's a website and blog and community and research resource um, that all kind of came from Robert Whitaker's book, Mad in America, oh, which was yeah. a... Um, yeah. So if you've read it, it was a, a critical re- a critical view of um, the history of um, psychiatry and um, you know, some of the less humane versions of psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm writing the series right now uh, because while there was a lot, there's always a lot of crossover between mental health and substance abuse. They're always seen somewhat as separate. Um, and there's some historical reasons for that. Um, so I'm um, in the process of, it's a 10-part series I'm halfway through right now, uh, and you know, just trying to give a resource to people. You know, it's 
it's a it's somewhat brief <laughs> being 10 pieces but um, I'm trying to get that research, resource to people so that you know if they're on the website and you're looking at these alternative things that they can go to this and understand you know where I'm coming from um, and how it fits into the, the larger model that sounds what, great. Yeah, and what for for those who have not yet read the series, and we'll link it in the description. But maybe with a if a uh, with a brief, um, <laughs> I don't know how brief you can be, but um, <laughs> actually maybe just one step back. I mean, how how and why did you get involved in this particular area of study in addiction and its history, um, as well as maybe how that may or may not intersect into community mental health and street medicine. Yeah. Uh, so my history is a non-traditional one, we'll say. Um, so I do consider myself a recovered addict and I say recovered, not in recovery. Um, I've, I've found that recovery through non-traditional means, um, specifically harm reduction. I think we can get to harm reduction a little bit later. Uh, uh, but just trying to dive into my story a little bit. And I know we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, some of the critiques and controversy around Dr. Carl Hart um, and the book that he's written and some of the interviews that he's done where he came out and uh, as a, as he called it, a regular heroin user, mm -hmm. um, but not somebody who was addicted to heroin, right. um, which is antithetical to what everybody believes can is possible. Um, but in that vein and kind of as a way to, to support what he's doing, cause you know, I was on the, I was on the Twitters as one will do. Um, and he posted out there actually for, you know, the, the importance of people to tell their story. Uh, so I had a really strange experience back in 2000 and it led me into the past 20 years where I've studied, uh, worked in, taught about, wrote about, and, you know, experienced, um, addiction, substance use, and, you know, the treatment of addiction. Um, it was really, uh, so back in 2000, I was in college. Uh, I didn't have much direction, we'll say. I did one of those things where you, you, know, you, you graduate high school, you're supposed to go to college, so you go. Um, and I didn't, I wasn't really, we'll say, was successful <laughs> the first time through. Uh, and during the spring semester of 2000, I was hanging around with a few people, a few of which would, um, they would actually blend what were known as benzodiazepines, a word I had no idea of at the time, and Ritalin. And they would snort it. And I joined in. Not really much of a peer pressure situation, much more of a peer opportunity. And quite honestly, at the point I could have taken it or leave it, I was I, I couldn't even really tell what was happening, if anything, because we were drinking as well. And um, so we did this basically for the entirety of that spring of 2000, just about every day, if not every other day. And we got to the end of semester and I said, you know, I, maybe it's time for me to, to you know, get back into classes, you know, get myself a little bit, you know, in order. Um, I was actually coming up on my 21st birthday that summer. And so this group of people, they were all going to head home for the summer and I was going to stay back and take some classes. And um, so at the end of that semester, you know, I used for the last time and about 36 hours after that, um, I was driving in the back of a car with a couple friends of mine. We were actually going to the Monroeville Mall, which some listeners might know as being famous for the place where George Romero filmed uh, Day of the Dead. Um, and on the way, I started to get these sensations down my arm, 
Um, my chest started pounding. Um, I started getting sweaty. I started feeling nauseous. And, you know, I had to have a pullover and I had to like walk around and take, take some deep breaths and try and calm down. And at the time I thought I was having a panic attack. But the, 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 the symptoms never really went away. And what happened is over that summer, um, unbeknownst to myself, because I had, you know, easily managed to stop using the drug, um, I had put myself in a situation where I was suffering through physiological withdrawal of the drug while exacerbating that physiological withdrawal with, you know, drinking. I was thinking to myself, you know, I'm going to quit that stuff. I'll just be drinking. I'll be fine. I was young. I'm not saying that it's, you know, a good choice. <laughs> um, but that's, that was what, that's what happened. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, everything continued to kind of spiral out. Um, by August of that summer, I was, I ended up in the hospital. I got mm -hmm. bad enough. Um, and this is actually a kind of interesting story. And it really goes to a lot of the presumptions that exist in our society. Uh, because when I arrived there um, the night before, and one of the reasons that kind of spiked my symptoms um, somebody had offered me a line of cocaine. And at the point I was saying, fine, I will try anything. I, I, I don't care. And so I started it. It did not help. <laughs> it actually made everything worse, um, which is what led me into the hospital. Um, and I got there. My heart rate was probably about 120 beats per minute. I, my blood pressure was through the roof. My heart's pounding. Can't sit still. I'm sick to my stomach. I'm dizzy. I, f I keep telling the nurse, I feel like I'm going to have a heart attack. They take me back to the ER. They hand me two Xanax. I take the two Xanax. Mm -hmm. And within 20 minutes, I'm right as rain for the first time since May. Wow. Hmm. Yeah. And, and the thing about it is that I still hadn't put two and two together. I had not yet figured this out, you know, what had happened. Because, of course, I'm mm -hmm. thinking to myself, well, that was back in May. It's been four months. This is mm -hmm. impossible. Mm -hmm. But I had told them during the screening that I had snorted that line of cocaine. So when the doctor came in, he handed me a prescription for Xanax to help with cocaine withdrawal. Mm. And he offered me <laughs> a re referral to treatment for cocaine addiction. Wow. Ooh. Yeah, so it, it was, <laughs> it's one of those situations where as soon as somebody hears, oh, you've done this drug, okay, well, obviously, A, you're lying about it about how much you're using and B, oh. you must be addicted. So uh, you have to be, you, you, you need treatment, right? So here's legal heroin to solve your cocaine. Yeah. Well, we'll say, we'll say, um, alcohol in a powder form. <laughs> oh yeah. 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 Uh -huh. yeah mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so basically what happened from there is I had a script and I'd be okay. And then I, I'd run out and then, you know, I'd get the symptoms would come back and I would start drinking to try and cover up the symptoms. And then I would get a script and then that would run out and I would, you know, drink to cover up the symptoms. And it got so bad. I basically, by the end of it, I said to myself, I must be an alcoholic. Aww. It was the only thing I could think of that would cause this. So I ended up calling up my sister. I explained to her what was going on. I broke down. I went home. I talked to my family. I'm, I'm shaking. I'm a mess. Somebody says, okay, well, here, here's some, guess what? Xanax. Um. <laughs> and like, let's help you calm down. I'm like, oh, thank you very much. I take it. And all of a sudden I'm right as rain again. I'm like, okay, well, you know what? I just got to make sure that I don't drink 
let me take this medication because obviously I have the, this, and this kind of goes back to that biochemical model of mental illness. I have the disease of anxiety, not addiction, but anxiety, you know, mm-hmm. because of mm-hmm. what I was experiencing with the benzodiazepines. Mm-hmm. The problem was that as soon as that blister pack that they gave me ran out, um, I started going right back into that physiological withdrawal that, that had never subsided mm-hmm. over that six months because I never wow. allowed my brain the time to let the GABA start balancing, the serotonin start balancing, all of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I remember it was, this is about 12 hours, so it was 2.30 in the morning. I remember I was watching Boys Don't Cry. I, don't, I still don't remember the movie because I don't think I've seen it since. Mm-hmm. And I had a seizure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I woke up. It was probably the scariest thing that I'd ever been through in my life. I had no idea what happened. Why did this happen? What was going on? I went to the hospital. They're checking me out, making sure I'm not epileptic. And I'm telling everybody, of course, I think I'm an alcoholic. I think I'm an alcoholic. I think I'm an alcoholic. So they say, okay, well, let's get you into treatment, right? Makes sense. Mm -hmm. You're telling me you're an alcoholic. Obviously, you're not going to try and hide anything. Mm -hmm. Let's get you in. So I go in. And now I had the similar experience that everybody does for the first time they see the 12 steps. So I don't know. Have, have both of you ever like seen and read through the 12 steps? Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm intimately familiar. Okay. So, you know, this kind of threw me back for a minute because I thought of myself kind of as an agnostic and, you know, um, almost atheistic person. And I started seeing God and higher power. And I started thinking to myself like, okay, wait, wait a minute, what's going on here? And I panicked for a second, but I was so scared of what happened to me. I was like, whatever, just teach me whatever. Because when I went in, I had two goals. Tell me why I had a seizure and tell me how never to have it happen again. Right. That was it. Right. So while I'm there, what am I being taught? Well, there's the traditional idea of addiction. It's very similar in some ways to, you know, this biochemical, um, chemical imbalance type ideas about mental illness. Um, and it goes that addiction is a chronic progressive disease of the brain um, marked by uncontrollable use of a substance. And without treatment, the person suffering from addiction will eventually die. Mm-hmm. That's the traditional model. And that's, and a lot of times when we teach that model, and this is part of what I'm writing about for Madden America, um, is, you know, somebody comes along and they're teaching about this disease and they'll say, and we now know that it's this disease and this is what happens and this is what it is. And the truth is that this idea has been around for about 250 years. Mm-hmm. It goes back to Benjamin Rush. But I didn't know any of this stuff and I'm taking in what they're, they're teaching me and I'm saying, okay. And at the time, I still thought I was an alcoholic. But when you go into treatment, you'll have pharmacists and pharmacologists come through, and they'll teach you about the drugs that you're using. And I started to learn about benzodiazepines. I started to find out that, in fact, benzodiazepines, if you abruptly quit them, can send you into anxiety, shaking, nausea, sweating, raise your heart rate, all this kind of stuff, cause seizures, Mm. and it clicked. I said, oh, Oh, I know what happened. I know what happened. And so I went to a counselor and I said, hey, I don't think I'm an alcoholic. 
I think I might be an addict. And I told him the story. I told him what happened. I spilled my guts out. And I was thinking to myself, wow, I'm having this big breakthrough. Like I was still trying to like hmm. accept the ideas. I just wanted to shift it from alcohol to, to these drugs. And he looked at me and he said, Kevin, you don't understand. You're still an alcoholic. And that kind of threw me because I'm thinking to myself, well, if alcohol didn't cause the symptoms, how could that be what drove me here? And, and then he looks at me and he says, have you ever tried heroin? I said, no. He said, you're addicted to heroin too. Hmm. See, this is back when there was this idea. I don't know if either of you ever heard of cross addiction. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it was an old theory. It's, it's phased out now, but it was this idea that if you're ever addicted to one substance, you're addicted to all of them. But if, if you think about it for a minute, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. If I'm looking for a drug that's going to calm me down, how could I be addicted to an upper like cocaine or methamphetamine? Hmm. So he tells me this. It shakes me up a little bit. I'm starting to get a little bit confused, but I keep going through. You know, I go from inpatient to partial partial to IOP, I start getting out into the real world and I start thinking and I can't like shake these thoughts of like, well, if it was the, these benzodiazepines that cause these symptoms, how is it that I'm an alcoholic? I never tried quitting alcohol and alcohol when I would drink to try and you know, cure these symptoms, it would never completely fill. Like imagine you've got a neurotransmitter. It's kind of filling it, but some gaps are left, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas if I would take the Xanax or Nativan, it would be fine, right? Now, once I'm thinking through this out in the kind of the real world, I'm looking around, I'm thinking to myself, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know how, the, does this really make sense? I started going to meetings. Like I, I was having weird experiences. Like it was almost kind of this feeling of like, there's something not right here. I'm missing something. And mm -hmm. so I started trying to do some research myself. Um, and I started reading people like Stanton Peel, Jeffrey Shaler, Thomas Schatz, um, Herbert Fingeret, Maya Zalvitz. And Fletcher, um, you know, a lot of these like, uh, theorists who have been studying, I, I read some of the, the Lee Robbins Vietnam study where they figured out that like 90% of GIs who were coming back from Vietnam were actually able to naturally remit from opioid yeah. addiction. I was reading stuff about you know, controlled drinking studies by the Sobels, and I had all this information, but it just, it basically, it caused this conscious cognitive dissonance within me. It was almost like, I know this isn't right, but it could be right. And if it could be right, then I could have a seizure if I drink. But if I drink, then I shouldn't have a seizure because it was this. And it just, it kind of spun me out, if you would. And it kind of led me into the situation where this confusion drove me. Eventually, I, I tried drinking again. Then as soon as I drank, I was like, am I going to have a seizure? But then I would, get nervous, I would get nervous and shaky. And I'm like, oh, is this shaky because I'm having withdrawal? I had four beers. I don't know. And I even remember, like, after I left treatment, I started having these nightmares. I'd be sitting there holding a Pepsi, talking to somebody. And I'd look back down. And all of a sudden, it was a beer. And I'd panic. And I'd have to run around and try and find, I'd have to find something else. I'd have to find booze because if not, I was going to have a seizure. I'm going to have a seizure. I'm going to have a seizure. Hmm. And so this, it, it kind of just spiraled out and I don't want to, it would take a while to go into the next 12 years, but let's kind of just <laughs> say that it, it, it kind of started feeding itself where I, I knew this wasn't right, but I couldn't still answer those first two questions. Can somebody hmm. confirm 
why I had a seizure, and what exactly I need to do not to have it again. And there was a point in there where I would do weird things like drink, I would get like an eighth of a shot of vodka and I would drink it just to say, well, I can't have a seizure for eight hours because I've had some alcohol in me. Mm-hmm. It was really weird, really weird experience, but it, it, it turned into this eventual, I'll call it a self-fulfilling prophecy. And by the end of the 12 years, I had been through detox eight times. I had done another inpatient. I actually had another withdrawal seizure. Um, I ended up, you know, near a full blown substance abuse disorder. And I was living at home in 2012 and I'm working two jobs and I'm thinking to myself, okay, if this is still going on, because it was, I was using about six to eight milligrams of Ativan every day. I would drink at night. If I didn't drink, I'd have about 12 milligrams of Ativan, which is a huge amount. Mm. I mean, clinical diagnosis, maybe one or two in a day. And I said, okay, something must be wrong. So in July of 2012, I put myself back into a detox. I remember thinking to myself just how much I had tried over that past year, like trying to work and trying to get myself together. And I was like, I've got to just figure something out. So when I went into detox, I came out and I said, fine, you know, I will try and go back into AA and NA, try and 12-step again. I went out, I got myself a home group. I was talking to people about being a sponsor. And I had this strange experience where I saw, um, it was an old timer and he was mocking somebody who had left the group. And I kind of had this kind of like glass shattering moment in my head of like, I, what am I doing here? You know, I kind I know better type of thinking. And I, I went out and I tried smart recovery and smart recovery is an abstinence only program. Um, based a lot on CBT and REBT. And can you, uh, just for listeners that don't know the acronyms, could you, uh, yeah. spell yeah. them out? It's uh, self-management and recovery training. And it's, uh, so it's, it's really good for, you know, some people who want to be a little bit more analytical, I think maybe for me and I just heard your, your last podcast on the PMC, the professional managerial class. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit PMC. It's a little bit kind of, we're going to sit here and we're going to, you know, solution your problem to your drinking. And we're going to go through this ABC together and kind of come out with, it didn't really work. And mm-hmm. I ended up, I was, I was drinking again because there was a part of me that felt like I had just turned 21 when all this occurred. I never had a chance to try and go out and do it myself. It was like I was living in an experiment where the, I was the control group, but I had already been messed with in a way. And so I started I started drinking again, and I said to myself, look, Kevin, if you don't try and do something about this, you're going to end up using benzodiazepines again because you're going to get freaked out. You're going to go down the path, and you're going to end up having to go through detox again. So I actually looked up, I Googled, because I, I started hearing this term harm reduction. I Googled this group. It was called... Um, So I Googled harm reduction for alcohol, and this group called HAMS came up, Harm Reduction, Abstinence, and Moderation Support for Alcohol. And I went on there, and it was was an online group. Um, It was Kenneth Anderson's group he started, so I'll give him a a shout-out. And, you know, I went out there, and I told the story, just like I kind of did here, and I said, I still haven't had – I just want somebody to validate Am I right? Am I I thinking about this correctly? Do I – is this – okay? And they started – yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Yes. 
you use the benzos, you sent yourself into this. Yes, that makes sense. No, if you drink two or three beers, you're not going to have a seizure the next day. I can, I can show you research. And I walked through that and I said, okay, well, I want to try and slow my drinking down, start to moderate it. And they said, that's great. Let's try that. Keep that plan going. And it was kind of the first time I got validation for what I wanted to do at the time. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, it started to work. I got, you know, one day alcohol-free. Then I got a weekend. Then we went on a trip with my family over to the England. I'm actually first generation. My parents are from England. So we were over there visiting our relatives and I got like eight out of 10 days. And I just, I came back and I thought to myself, it was, it was kind of mind blowing and crushing at the same time because I kind of felt to myself like, yeah, it's possible. You can, you, you can do this. But then you also started thinking to I started thinking to myself, but then I've lost 12 years. (laughs) So I left. So I kind of had to work through that for a little bit, and I developed this plan. And I said, "Okay, well, I want to get involved in harm reduction. I want to have other people get this available to them." So I started um, volunteering at a, a needle exchange here in Pittsburgh, uh, Prevention Point, Pittsburgh. And I started looking to go back to school to get a master's and go back to grad school. Um, and I started looking at the program at Point Park University, and it was it's a very humanistic, existential, phenomenological place. And really what that said to me was that I was going to have the opportunity to study this in a way that I wanted. I was going to feel comfortable. Whereas if I'd gone to some other programs, I might have run into a situation where I'm butting heads with a yeah. professor or an advisor. Do you know what I mean? And so I, I signed up for there, and as I'm volunteering and taking these sample classes, I started hearing about Operation Safety Net, you know, and you know, they do street outreach and street medicine, and they have um, homeless supportive services, and they espouse a harm reduction model. And I thought, wow, wouldn't it be great if I got a job there? And I saw that they had a position open. I applied, and I actually started grad school August 20. Let me see if this math works. Yeah, it was August 25th of 2013. I started at Operation Safety Net September 2nd, 2013. Wow. So like a week later. And everything just kind of merged from there. I continued, you know, like since 2012, like the drinking continued to decline. I, right now, like, I honestly, I can't tell you the last time I actually had a beer. <laughs> any kind of drink, to be honest. Um, you know, I stayed clean of that whole cycle of benzodiazepines and everything like that. And then, you know, I, so I, I was working with safety net. I helped to run uh, a drop-in center, um, a severe weather shelter. Um, I ended up case managing at, and then supervising a permanent supportive housing project. Um, and, you know, I, I was doing that while I was uh, full-time um, grad school. And, you know, I, I, when I was doing that, I was also um, you know, doing some presentations and everything for uh, the Society of Humanistic Psychology, Division 32 of the APA. Um, and so I was, I was involved in a lot. I was getting involved. Yeah. I was getting moving and everything was going, you know. And, you know, so that kind of that's kind of the story that I have where it's a little strange, you know, but it, it, it that's that's my story. But it's it's non-traditional. I had a really weird experience that kind of led me down to this path to thinking in these new ways and kind of going into these non-traditional models. Well, when you, after you've gone that path and you've come to a place that feels okay, can you say 
this is where I went wrong. This is what I, I believe now in a kind of synthesis for our audience. Sure. Um, so what I learned from everything that I've read, and this is where I'm, I'm writing to in the Mad America, Mad America piece is that, you know, as we've taught this kind of chronic, I went through the chronic disease model, um, you know, We've learned since then that you know, the chronicity, the progressiveness isn't true. The idea of losing control isn't true. And to kind of paraphrase um, Stanton Peel, it's much more about attachment. It's an attachment to, and this moves away from drugs, it's attachment to any intense experience that fulfills a need that you have, but it comes at expense of long-term health which could be physical, social, emotional, psychological, whatever it might be. And it's much more about that experiential psychological aspect than it is about the physiological side. That's why we can start understanding things like gambling addiction or sex addiction or, you know, money, wealth, and power addiction. Um, and, and, you know, understand this is really, and if somebody just pinned me up against the wall and said, give me a one word answer for what addiction is. And I'm not trying to be smart or funny. It's, it's human. It is a human ability. It is born out of our ability to attach ourselves to things. It is born out of our need to attach ourselves to things. And so, you know, when we experience instability, insecurity, and trauma, you know, we need to find ways to fill those goals, those those holes. We need to, to find ways to, to fill those gaps and those intense experiences do that. And so we can become attached to them even at the expense of whatever it might be. Well, that makes really good sense to me. And it kind of fits mm -hmm. with the theory that started being developed um, by Martin R. Smith, who worked with um, adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families, which kind of covers almost everybody. And <laughs> What he talked about and what I then developed with him is that since we know that every experience that you have in life has a biochemical component, and so that you then develop certain needs for things that have biochemical bases, and you look for a drug that fills those needs, and you have the opportunity because there's a bunch of drugs out there to mm -hmm. try drugs and see what works for you. But there are other ways of meeting those needs. And one of the things that's really powerful about what you said, and it very much relates to what Johan Hari talks about, is connection fills a lot of human needs for yeah. experience, for validation, and for a sense that your life means something which we don't get much in our culture, which has been starting to change, but which has been depoliticized and isolating in its capitalistic set of individual values. And that what you found was to restructure your biochemistry and therefore your brain, which is such a flexible organ, through connection. And I think... In that way, it is such an endorsement of a basic socialistic, economically cooperative, in co-ops way of running an economy and a society that is an antidote to addiction. And it helps explain that as societies get more and more unequal, 
as America now has the dubious honor of being the most inegalitarian of all the developed countries, then people's lives, they work and work, nothing works. Their lives lose meaning and they need connection in order to restructure their lives, connection with other people in a meaningful way so that your trajectory is very much that trajectory and it has its it has a biochemical explanation as well as a psychological one. It's thrilling. Thank you. And I, I, I also like to think sometimes we, the, the biochemical, the, the embodiment of it all, mm. you know, it, they're happening in, in conjunction, right? Mm. I'm experiencing the, the, the physiological and then the physiological is being changed by my experiences and vice versa. We've seen that in right. genetics. You know, and you know, so, but yeah, I'm the Johan Hari's the, the the famous twelve te, or twelve TED talk. I'm sorry, um, that he did about connection is really good. Mm-hmm. But if we're if, just for a second, if we do want to go onto that critical path, and I, I think we do, about our culture and our society, especially the, that capitalistic nature, you know, a lot of people today are focusing on trauma, trauma informed care, and that's yeah. perfect, great, and good. However, we also need to worry about things like stability and insecurity. And yeah. our society, our economy is built to create instability and insecurity, mm-hmm. build the thing that will fill it, and then sell it to you. Yes. Right. You know, and I'm, one thing that I've been thinking about just as of processing in the past couple of years is when I think about the 660 billionaires that we have, you know, we look at those from a social perspective as this, this is like a positive thing, right? Mm-hmm. And then we look at the person who's suffering from heroin addiction, addiction and they're, you know, they're, they're going through a disease and they're going through a problem, and they are. Mm-hmm. How much of that is this, you know, s- static, specific disease? Well, that's debatable. But this person over here who's gained enough wealth that they can influence our everyday lives. Mm-hmm. You don't do that just because you got really successful. Mm-hmm. I look at those, like, I look at the billionaires and I, I look and I honestly see addiction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's a film um, by Costa Gavras called Capital that's mm-hmm. brilliant and only played very briefly um, for obvious political reasons. But it shows the path of someone addicted to making more money. Mm. And he's very successful and uses the people around him in order to gain more. And when Mm. the various people that he's alienated, his best friend, his wife, Mm. say to him, look, you are losing all of us if you continue this. He says, I don't care. I'm winning. I'm winning. Because if the idea that you get more for yourself, you're winning, even if you lose every tie to your humanity and to other people, is the sickness of capitalism. Mm-hmm. And to reward those people, we don't have, we have programs about the rich and famous, not about the poor and miserable mm-hmm. and unknown, which we should have, because they're both, they're Siamese twins. And well, so I, I want to... That's a good point. 
I want to ask you, Kevin, based on your, your comment on the like trauma, focus on trauma that's kind of emerging, trauma-informed care. And I, I have a I have a critical rant on trauma-informed care. I won't actually don't want to go. It'll <laughs> kind of derail, I think, a little bit. Um, but the, I want to understand more what you mean. Because um, here's, I guess, my my conceptualization of this. Um, the the pros and cons of this are are that on the one hand, it probably makes more sense for us now to be understanding addiction as related to personal trauma than, you know, a disease or a chemical imbalance, right? It's probably an Mm -hmm. improvement, but I guess to to see if I'm understanding what you're saying is that is, is the, is the flawed logic here that it's still just individualized. If we just say like, Oh, well, it's your individual trauma. So let's just throw you into the mental health industry so we can treat your trauma. And then we can sort of erase all the circumstances. Is that sort of what you're, what yeah. you're saying with the trauma model? Yeah, okay. Very much so, because yeah. if you think about it, there's, you know, when I went um, to grad school, it's the, the program's actually in clinical community psychology, and there's a huh. story that community psychologists like to tell, and it's an old fable, it's an old proverb. You probably heard it as soon as I, I, I tell it. Um, but you're down by a riverbank, and you see somebody drowning. Mm-hmm. And you go in and you pull them out and you make sure that they're okay. And then you look back and there's another person and another person, and another person, and another person. You know, what is happening? Well, if you actually look down the river, you could see that the bridge is broken and people keep falling in. So with this trauma informed care, it's, 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 it's trying to soften the edges of that kind of industrial model of bring them in, fix them up, send them along their way. Yeah. And I experienced this. And one of the things I, I didn't get into when I was telling my story is, you know, I actually left um, the Homeless Services Operation Safety Net. Um, it, that's actually tucked underneath a larger entity, a community health um, agency. And I moved from there over to uh, managing the substance use disorder team, actually. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought, well, this is going to be an opportunity. Maybe I can, you know, find some spots and some little holes I can, you know, put some new stuff into, but it's dang near impossible because you've got regulations on the books that say if you're a licensed drug and alcohol provider, you have to do X number of things. You have to teach this theory. You have to teach them this thing and this thing and this thing. You have to do this thing for their aftercare. And it just taking that idea that like the whole theory model of it didn't fit with me. And then, you know, looking from that management perspective of it, like, you know, there was some clinical supervision and talking about the actual people we were serving. Absolutely. But there was also a lot of, well, we've got this wait list. How many people can we get off the wait list? Who's got spots open? Like who, who, who can we move uh-huh. on? <laughs> who can we move on? Who do we need to move up to a higher level? Right. And there's that model of bring them in, especially from community mental health, which is where most people who are suffering the most go. Mm-hmm. It's bring them in, fix them up, send them along. You know, it's levels of care. It's it's that Ford industrial model. And so you take the trauma-informed care and you just kind of lay that into it. It's not changing the whole thing. Whereas if you say, where does all the trauma come from? Mm-hmm. Why are we having all this trauma? Why as a society do we have all these rates of addiction? Why do we have these rates of addiction, addiction in certain pockets? Mm-hmm. How are these things happening to understand it? at that social level. And I think a lot of the way that I've kind of gone, especially after that experience managing that team is to start moving away from kind of that individualized, how do I work with that person Mm -hmm. to how do we fix the system? 
how do so okay i have like maybe a maybe this is too big of a question but like um are you familiar with the liberation health model by the way uh, we we had um, um don belkin martinez on a few months ago who who kind of got into that it, booked out. yeah well well anyway you could you could check it out later it doesn't okay. seem like it's a hugely like popular or used model we the both it was new to the the two of us but the the emphasis that it had in sort of putting someone at the center i'll just kind of describe it briefly and then mm. kind of ask the this sort of troubling question i have put the person in the middle of this triangle and at each of the three points in the triangle there's one so and then there's the problem the, the individual's problem is in the center of the triangle mm. and then you map out of the three points one what are the individual causes or or maybe ways that the problem is is there for you what are the cultural elements in the culture and what are the institutional elements? And you kind of map the whole thing out to like conceptualize the person's problem in this really broad sense. That's like way outside of the individual, you know, cause it in, you include indiv individual things, but you also include everything else. Um, I guess one frustration for me having, you know, I'm relatively fresh out of five years in community mental health is that even if we conceptualize problems, more broadly than the individual, do we even have the capacity within the model of community mental health as, and as individual clinicians to like effectively do systems change work? I don't, does that question make sense? Absolutely. Like how do we actually do that? Yeah. Um, I, I didn't know of the liberation health model, but that's very interesting. Um, and I am going to check that out. I, I know about, um, liberation pedagogy. Um, and I always, yeah. Paulo Freire. Yeah, um, I think they're they're definitely informed by that kind of yeah. thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean that's a major question. I my girlfriend is actually she's a, a licensed counselor and trained art therapist, and hmm. you know so she works in a um, health set a health center setting herself, and you know and you know, has some frustrations about that that fact that you know as much as they can do for that person when they're with them there's so many other things that are untouchable, mm. right? There, there's, you know, I mean, it, it's one of the experiences is, okay, well, um, while you're working in that community health setting, let's start introducing case management. But is a case manager going to give a person the keys to a home or are they going to refer them to another program that's going to refer them to another program that might get funding if we can get this money from the state, but the state doesn't want to do it anymore because blah, 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 blah. Right. And those things always become so untouchable to even fill the needs left by those social issues, let alone change the social issues themselves through that model. Yeah. Well, one of the troubles is that those are socio-political questions. Yeah. And what you mm -hmm. hope that people can do is connect with themselves and each other and see that the program is – and. It, that there's a system against them. There is a system of interlocking capitalist parts, breeding, precarity, and pain at the bottom and enriching the top. And that joining together with other people is their only hope to change the wider system while they also try to be self-aware and support each other. Because I think that although the 12-step model has some limitations, mm -hmm. it also works when it does because it's a communist model. Mm -hmm. Each according to his or her or their abilities 
to eat according to their, his or her needs with no money involved and a community of acceptance and support. It's okay, very I, healing. And let me just jump in there because that's absolutely how I've seen it. And it's when I, when people say, how did the 12 step work? The last thing I usually would bring up is the 12 steps themselves. Yeah, And I would actually go to mm. the fact that it mm. builds community. It builds meaningful community and connections yeah. to people that have had similar experiences while also giving you, you know, personal, meaningful responsibilities. Right. It's why it's, it's why, it's why before you even get on your first step, you're supposed to pick up, you know, and find a home group and a sponsor. Right. You get the community and the responsibility. And like, even if it's just making the coffee type of thing before right. a meeting, it's those things that really work for people. Whereas, you know, sometimes the 12 steps can, you know, they can, you know, depending upon how the person interprets them or, or works with them or not, that can sometimes be the hiccup. Whereas those two things are the most important part of it. I, I think there's a, an element of it being peer led as well, instead of a sort yeah. of the hierarchy of like a professional. Right. Cause like it, with the, the other issue with community mental health that, I think is another big elephant in the room and it, without some major overhaul of funding or restructuring, I don't really know what to do about this, but people often are feeling like they're just getting kind of like, like almost, you know, when you're trying to like call the, the, um, to like pay your bill and you're like, Hey, uh, there was an error on the form. They're like, let me transfer you to this person. And then they transfer you to the department and then the call follows through and you have to go over again. I feel yeah. like people feel like that in the community mental health world. We're like, here's this counselor. No, you know what? They actually just, uh, they just left for another place. So you're getting transferred to another clinician. And then after like six months, you might see three or four different people and you haven't really built a sufficient connection with people that they might be like kind of undertrained or, you know, they might be like burnt out or whatever. So you, you're actually just feeling like there's all these, like, I think you can actually build a sense of hopelessness and just saying like, well, I've been told that this system is the best way for me to get help. None of these people really seem to know what the hell they're doing. And they don't, they don't even, they don't even stick around for very long. Right. So in some cases you go to this 12 step group and there's all these like disheveled people, like just kind of being in, you know, just being like weird and crazy and like quirky, like human beings, like you're saying, this yeah. is just these existential entities that are similar to you that you're like, Oh, these are just regular folks. And I think, um, for my participation in past 12 step, which I don't think I've really mentioned in this program, but um, that was something that I, I felt, I actually felt it was like super bewildering. I was like, these people are psychos. Um, <laughs> but I was also like, well, they're psychos like me and I need this help. Right. So I know it's not for everyone at every point in their, in their life, mm -hmm. but I think the, the, the community mental health, as, as beautiful as community mental health can be, that the drawback can be that people just see like, wow, this is really broken and this doesn't work for right. me. So I'm not well, twelve steps really do need, and of course they won't get all these free churches if they had it, but they need a step of looking for the social conditions that shaped their problem. Even if they are looking at the family as an institution and why is that so promoted while any support for it is denied? Why do they think anyone who gets knocked up can take care of a vulnerable person? 24 hours a day. What's going on here? Changing the social support for the future, shifting it back onto the individual shoulders of people who can't manage it. Let's look at the social conditions of what's going on here and how we could change them. And I know in the 12 step world, that's considered a um, cop out on personal responsibility. And what we're talking about, the three of us, is not just personal. 
like mm-hmm. the program mm-hmm. says. It's also that there are a lot of forces getting you to this uncomfortable place around which you need a lot of forces to get help. And so that with every step, whether it's a moral inventory, which is important personally, but it's also important to look at your country. Look at the moral inventory of this country built on genocide and racism and exploitation. Maybe that was a problem and maybe we could change that. That there has to be a social component even though I think one of the reasons that every little tiny town has at least an AA is because they've exacted that component from the analysis. And I, I want to agree absolutely. And I think that's part of where I really wanted to, when I was studying it and now I'm writing about it, is, is diving into the history of it. And uh, we kind of think of AA and 12 Step as this kind of singular entity, but it's got a history where it goes through the Oxford group before it, the Washingtonians, the temperance movement. And that all kind of reaches back to when we originally created this idea about addiction being, you know, this personalized, individualized, internalized, reductive yeah thing. And basically it all started with uh, Benjamin Rush, and I hate this term, but the father, quote unquote, um, misogynistic a little bit there, of American psychiatry, looking around and seeing poverty. And instead of saying like, well, what gave rise to this poverty? How did the systems do it? He's basically, to paraphrase the questions, is how did these poor people cause this poverty? (laughs) What was wrong with them that they're poor? Exactly. You know, and he would, yeah. saying, if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? Right. It's the same idea. Yeah. And so then he looked and he saw, oh, well, they're drinking. Okay. Well, we're getting <laughs> you know, around the time of like germ theory and like infectious disease. So say, well, oh, the, the alcohol is going in and it's infecting the body and it's causing these changes. And it's, I mean, if you really think about this idea, it's almost like a zombie effect that's described by this kind of traditional model where like the drug takes over the body. Right, like a, the mind. Yeah, and we've kind of always known it's it's not really that, you know. And so, I think that history of coming from that point of if the question originally was how did these poor people cause poverty, and that's really instructed the history leading up to kind of what the content is. And I think that's that that part is missing is how did the poverty get there. Uh, maybe that's actually a good segue for Dr. Hart um, mm-hmm. because, you know, so just the background of Dr. Hart, and he's probably one of those uh, other researchers that I've well looked up to in my career in, you know, academic history. Um, he came from a, a poor area in Miami. Um, he joined the Air Force to get, you know, out of the community, ended up getting stationed over in um, England. And it was over there that he started having different experiences with people um, and their expectations of him based upon his race. And this kind of opened up some opportunities. That's how he got into studying psychology. And part of what he wanted to study was addiction because there was that idea, especially around Miami at that time, it was around the 80s, that, you know, crack cocaine was there and it was causing the poverty. So if we can figure out how to cure people of the crack addiction, we can cure poverty. So he went and he started, he got his PhD, he started studying it, he started replicating some old studies. Um, Some of them would be like, if I would take a $20 bill 
and $20 worth of crack cocaine. And I offered it to somebody who's a regular, you know, somebody that I could, through a screener, I could diagnose as having, you know, a severe, um, or not opioid, but substance use disorder for cocaine. And I offer them these two choices, which one would they pick? You know, if they're of equal value, the theory would be, well, they would just take the crack, but the majority of people would take the $20. Mm. And he would start seeing th- this happen, and he started studying it more and more. He started like, diving into the, the history. And so when he came out with his book, um, High Price, before this last one, he, he talked about a little bit of his history and how he studied this and how he came to these ideas of, you know, ev- everybody's always taught this idea that, you know, drugs are coming in, they're infecting, and they're causing the poverty. But in reality, as he's seen it, you know, the poverty causes the drug use. The conditions are causing somebody, once again, kind of going back to that attachment searching idea, Mm. people are in those situations and they're looking for something to get them out of it, something to take away the pain for a moment, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I I think it it also kind of, so when I think of, I can imagine like, what's that movie, Wolf of Wall Street with Leonardo DiCaprio, Mm -hmm. where like, I could think of like billionaires in Wall Street, like using Coke and use like using whatever they, they might like use, you know, we have that framework of there's like use abuse addiction, you know, there's a yeah. sort of spectrum. But I, I, when I think of like those guys, I mean, there's, there's probably indefinitely like addiction present there. I think like that, even that movie sho- showed. Right. And I think that there was actually, there's more behavioral addiction problems, right? Like the addict, like the workaholism, the addiction to sort of status and success is like power, yeah. pri- primary. And like the substance stuff is just like, they're like messing around. They're just sort of like flaunting the status by using all yeah. this all the expensive drugs or whatever. But to me, there's to, to, so to this isn't devil's advocacy, but it's sort of like the flip side of that, where it's like the poverty leading to um, like, when you don't, when you don't have enough, you need to try to fill up the not having enough with something. But then I think there's this interesting flip side where when you have like a way excess, that's also based on the exploitation of others. I think there's this almost, um, almost like the, uh, you have a, um, this is almost spiritual deficit or something actually emerges from that where you have to fill that with something. And that's where I think, um, so I think that, 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 that conceptualization works from both sides. I think it's like more materially tangible when we're talking about poverty, but then it also just speaks to, I think the, um, um, and I'm not even making like religious statements or something about this. I guess, I guess maybe from a moral perspective, I think when you think of like the, the Wolf of Wall Street people, or Jeff Bezos, or whoever, even like the good, the good billionaires, like the Bill Gateses. Like yeah, I'm sure I was going to say Bill, Bill Gates. Right? Yeah, Bill Gates is probably you know who knows how much coke he does, but like, yeah, <laughs> sure. but like you know, the, the, definitely that's not gonna. We're not we're not going to find news about that anytime soon. But um, but I think it goes. You know, there's still there's still a devoid of something for people in that sort of echelon of society as well. Well, if you're going to be in that echelon of society you're going to be on top of a massive pyramid of exploitation. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, the, and one of the things that has changed that enhances addiction is that in the 1970s, CEOs got approximately 40 times more than the average worker in their industry. McDonald's now, their CEO gets 3,000 times more than the average worker in the McDonald's industry. In order to do that, you have to harden your heart. You cannot afford the human continuity and compassion that makes us sane. Mm-hmm. You can be like people are. You look at Bezos, he just found somebody else. 
he's having a lot of sex or whatever, he's reduced to his own desires and sensations, like somebody who has nothing in the world. Because the detachment from other human beings that comes from despair or comes from exploitation are somewhat similar. You cannot do what Bezos does and have people getting COVID by the hundreds in your warehouses because you're packing people together mm-hmm. at unsafe distances in order to get the product out while you actually care about them. And you're just thinking of how to go into outer space. And perform that <laughs> yeah. But there is a disconnect with humanity, which can happen in despair and it can happen in affluence. But the disconnect is not only immoral, it's unhealthy mentally. Because if attachment and community and connection are what mental health is about, they're out of luck. I, and, and also, we should probably emphasize though too, because like it's not the the level of um, the level of disconnect, whether you're on the top or the bottom, is not equal in the sense that your your level of power is not equal. And so, no. therefore, I think um, a billionaire who does live in excess and is abusing quote unquote abusing drugs or whatever. Um, there's no, nobody cares. Like it's sort of expected and they're not going to get punished for it. Whereas if you're at the bottom, like you might have to, you know, you're going to like lose your housing. You're going to go to prison. You're going to, um, you know, you're, you're like materially and sociologically screwed, um, based in part, I think based on the, like the perception of like, oh, that's really immoral what you're doing. But then also just because of the way our economy is set up where, um, the safety nets aren't really strong enough and, um, you know, and, and that we don't really have an effective treatment. I mean, there's treatment models, and then there's even just the way we implement them and the way we conceptualize it yeah. is like so, like backwards. So, um, yeah, I mean, for the, just for the treatment aspect, I think you know, just I, I think we've got a lot of the stuff out there that that could do a lot of good. But a, we've got yeah. to make sure that people have basic needs before they start worrying about. Yeah, yeah. You know, diving into to whatever it is, but also just, you know, trying to teach a more humane view of addiction is going to help as opposed to because we've learned both in addiction and mental health, when you use this disease idea, we we believe that it's going to eliminate stigma, but it actually creates more stigma because it's literally stigma. It's marking somebody as the thing, this other thing here, the abnormal, right? And I mean, if we're going to go back to cocaine and and affluence versus poverty, this is the crack disparity in a nutshell. We have you know a hundred yeah. times greater sentencing for crack cocaine than powder cocaine, right. and there's a disparity in who uses crack cocaine versus powder cocaine. You know, and then it, I mean, and kind of just a, as a sign of our times, we saw it as some kind of huge victory that we lowered it from a hundred times to ten times. Like, no, it may, it, in my view, it shouldn't be illegal anyway, but that is not a victory. It's still accepting of this idea and that, you know, the person who uses a drug, and maybe that's also part of the controversy about Dr. Hart right now, whereas yeah, yeah. if a person uses a drug and it is this list of drugs that we've created, then right. this person has to be addicted to it because there's no other way of doing that. And he proves that he is a highly functional celebrated researcher with a prestigious position at Columbia and he's enjoying his drugs when he feels like it. 
Right. I, I mean, during this pandemic, how many times have we seen people posting about the shipments of booze that they got and, you know, being able to make it through because I had my bottles of whiskey. I'm how many podcasts I've listened to that started advertising Jura whiskey, not to call them out or anything, oh. but I'm just thinking about, yeah. you know, just we use, and it's a terrible drug. Yeah. It is probably yeah. the worst drug out there. It affects yeah. every part of your brain, every part of your body. And I, the way I think about it too, is like, imagine you're sad. Let's put sad, just write sad on like a bullseye on a target. You know, you could take a drug like an opioid and you can hit it with a dart. You can, or you, you know, you, you're tired and you're lethargic. You can hit it with like Adderall, bang, you can hit that with a dart. Now let's imagine you're sad and the only option you have is alcohol. It's like taking a shotgun and shooting it at the target. You have no idea what's going to happen. You could go in sad and you could end up angry. You could go in angry, you could end up crying. You could go in happy, you could end up whatever. It, it, there's no control over it. it. It affects all of the brain chemistry. And it's just, but yet I can go down to the gas station and pick up a bottle of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and in those countries like Portugal and Uruguay mm -hmm. and other countries where drugs are legal, they find that the drug use goes way down. They cut mm -hmm. drug use 75% in Portugal when they made the drugs legal. The government sold them in a contained way, and there was always a chance to get off the drug and get some help with it when you bought the drug. And then the government used the money to help people. And it, yeah. they cut down addiction wildly. One in four Portuguese people used to have a drug addiction. Also, they changed their government, which is a very important thing. For the last, I guess, 15 years, between 10 and 15, there were a coalition between the Communist Party, the Green Party, and the um, Socialist Party. So there's three main players, and they have a different philosophy about what's important in life and what's important to people, which also functions to save this, save people from addiction, that there is a place and people do have a future and we all need help. And there's no shame in that. It's a very mm -hmm. different philosophy. And then just also thinking about that, a lot of people, and I think this is one of the other things I've seen lately is that I think these cultural ideas about addiction and mental illness run so deep that even people on the left in this country don't have that critique because I've seen the people like I respect who write for publications, Jacobin, Current Affairs, and they're even kind of piling on, you know, what's happened with Dr. Hart. And I, I've seen a lot of them have some ideas like we can't, we, we got to stop spending money on criminalizing and throwing people in jail and we got to push them to treatment instead. But here's the thing in Portugal, they didn't actually push everybody into treatment. They so gave everybody housing, career training, income, whatever they needed. And then if they gave them some therapy or treatment on the, if as needed, but it wasn't just push them into to, to therapy either. And I think, you know, at least for these topics, I think there, there needs to be, you know, on the left kind of a, a knowing critique of where all these ideas came from. And I think that would help a lot of expansion of, you know, some of these policies, some of these ideas getting out and open and, you know, whereas I, I don't, 
I see as much as some on the left might want to decry neoliberalism, a lot of what we have in the treatment models and everything today is very neoliberal. And they're still not quite there with that critique yet. And hopefully your podcast and others like it will get that done. Well, I was just listening to, uh, there's a podcast called, uh, I think it's This Is Revolution, um, This Is Revolution podcast. And they were actually talking about um, the current kind of discussion about like police abolition and and um, basically what their critique was. They were talking about this idea that suddenly is like, let's replace cops with social workers, which like in theory seems like a really good idea. And it's related to the same, the same sort of cry for like decriminalization and then throw treatment at it is like, get rid of cops and throw treatment at it. Is that they were they were talking about the very real issue of like well social workers are already like kind of like underpaid overworked burnt out and like you know you could you could just try and just sort of reforming the system with these little teeny tiny tweaks but but I I guess what my my sort of um, the bumper sticker thing I'm trying to say here is that I think I agree with your assessment that the left generally and like whether it's media pundits or people that just sort of write articles all day about stuff. They're not mental health professionals, but they sort of like use our profession sometimes to make political points that I don't think they've thought through very, very much. Yeah. Like, and I don't mean, I don't even mean that as like a diss of them. I just think that like, like people don't understand even what treatment, they don't understand the treatment models, the history, like you're, you're trying to write in your article, in your series, like here is a really complex history from sort of the inception of the U.S. Yeah. Um, or even maybe before and during different periods of the different ways that we've talked about, understood and tried to, to, to treat or criminalize or, yeah. or whatever addiction. And that is not, I think, understood in the mainstream. Um, and, and so like everything you just mentioned about Portugal of them. So another way to put this is maybe people need to start understanding that quote unquote treatment and quote unquote mental health doesn't always involve mental health professionals and doesn't always involve mental health uh, treatment, if that makes sense. Like housing, like guaranteed housing and decommodification of human needs is a mental health treatment. Right. But those are, those are like policies. You can't see it, but I'm pumping my arms up in the air. Yes. I, that's kind of where I've, I've ended up myself where it's like treatment, we have treatment, but we need to like, we need to actually open up more space in treatment, if you would. We need to, like, if if you start throwing social workers at everybody, it doesn't matter because those social workers aren't going to have the resources. So if somebody comes and they need housing, they're not going to be able to get you housing because it doesn't exist. You know, but something like a guaranteed housing, some form of income, Medicare for all is not just about getting people access to treatment. It in and of itself, by giving people the stability of guaranteed healthcare Mm -hmm. is a preventative and curative for a lot of mental health and addiction issues. Just the more stable, the more people's basic needs are met, mm-hmm. you know, the, the better we're going to be able to do these things. And not only that, but when you do that and people are able to work through things a little bit, it's going to give a little bit of space, you know, so that the overworked, burned out therapists and social workers might actually have some resources to work with, <laughs> yeah. you know? And, you know, if we actually gave them, it, I mean, I, I actually at one point, um, I was right before I, I was, I was offered a, a promotion when I was at, um, commu- when I was in community mental health, I was actually, um, starting to 
I became a member of the IWW to try and start an organizing campaign for (laughs) the therapists and social workers because it's things like conditions of work that need to get better. Like every single therapist is out there trying to get enough to get their license so they can go into private practice because they can't live without it. It's What what you have is you have a set of socialist collective values which are different. So if you look at what Jacinda Ardern recently did this year, no, it was 2020, not 2021. But what she did in order to create equal pay is she looked at the skill, the jobs that are caring for people that were traditionally undervalued. And she had a whole commission break them down into the skills that they required that are actually valued, marketplace skills, and then change the pay scale. So social workers got a 30.5% increase because their work was valued. If you have a different economic, social, cultural system, you have a different set of values and whose work has value. So that a stock holder like Jeff Bezos, who doesn't do anything now that he's not even pretending to be CEO. He just collects money every day. He wins the lottery from his, mm-hmm. you know, from the ten off of interest, thousands yeah. working for him. Mm-hmm. That you you change the values so that is not valuable. So that you have what many countries have is they have a maximum wage, and any yeah. you know, and they can't get more than that. And so and, then they have a lot more money to pay for Medicare for all because you're not, you know, a, a wonderful example is the stock transfer tax in New York where I live. That was passed in 1905. It was passed that for every $100 worth of stocks sold on the New York Stock Exchange, a nickel has to go into the treasury of the city. In 1985. It was counted, but it was stopped. It's already on the books, but they don't do it because who's going to pay for their campaign contributions? It's yeah. a interlocking system, and it needs systemic change in order to heal people. And that's the yeah. trouble. And that's what people have to keep in mind while they try to get themselves together and connect as a group to change the system. Mm-hmm. This actually makes me, this brings me back to a client I have, or, uh, yeah, so there's a, um, let's see, how do I, like, sometimes try to give client stories and, like, be super not specific with that. Um, there's a, there's a, um, I think, I think I'm pretty good about it, but I guess, okay, I'll just say this. There's someone who um, very hardcore identifies as, like, I'm a recover, recovering you know, recovery. addict person, but like very 12 steppy and like, not the, not the, tw- the, the way we've been describing 12 step is like, Oh, it's this community support thing. I think there is actually a danger of sometimes this, this, this sort of personality development or reinforcement of people that really are like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, um, yeah. take personal responsibility. But then, <laughs> but then they, they start to like push that on other people. Um, and I would say that this person very much pushes it on their kids. Uh, and that's actually what the whole like treatment's about. But, um, but the, I'm saying that because, I think the um, our emphasis here in saying like, well, we need to start thinking through how to develop better policies, systems, institutions that are more kind of like nurturing and um, and and uh, you know equitable. That I think sometimes 
here's another sort of danger sometimes of the 12 step model or just the take personal responsibility model for people that do get sober is that they often don't think once they get clean or are in recovery, they don't think like, how do I now integrate myself into some sort of a more cohesive collective to make things better for everyone? Um, they're like, oh, good. I did better for myself and I'm just going to keep doing better for myself. You know, I, I think that's, yeah, th- that's a little unfortunate to me sometimes. Cause I would really love for people to come out of these programs saying like, okay, now it's time that we all work together to make the system better so that people don't end up in the situation I was. There has to you know. be a step at the end to consider the social conditions of your addiction and do something mm-hmm. about it. Yeah. And, and they I think, stay politically mm-hmm. pure and get a, a lot more freebies by not addressing that at all. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, th- thir- 13th stepping is currently referred to like trying to sleep with people I know, that's um, in the program. So we, I guess we should call this the 14th stepping is like now right. you... I don't know, you joined DSA or something. Or we could just change the 13th step, yeah. <laughs> you got to get rid of that because it's just kind of like a gross, I mean, it's funny, but it's it's also gross. No, but you yes. have to say, next step, what is social conditions that shape my addiction and shapes that of others? And what can we do about it? And, but I do think, just Max, to your point, there are some tripwires built into there, you know, when you start, if you do come out and you start saying, okay, well, look at, you know, the, the history, the, the, ge- the generational trauma and all this other kind of stuff, there is a danger of somebody with a little bit more time who's gained a little bit more, just let's straight call it power within the group that right. can come up and use that whole, you know, slogan of, well, you know, think about your side of the street. What What's your part in this type of thinking? Mm-hmm. And there, there is built into it, and I think you know, there, there, in everything we kind of build as human, there's always good parts. There's always some misses, we'll say, and opportunities. Mm-hmm. And I think that is one of them where it it really does kind of reduce everything. And even if you take, and it's strange to do this because I know America is a very individualized culture, mm-hmm. but at the same time, if you think about the program itself, it's taking the individual and saying, no, the higher power is over there, and you kind of have to like mm-hmm. hope that it's it's helping you type of thing. And to, you're not, you're in it, but you're not, you're kind of out of it. It's something that happens without you, and you kind of got to worry about yourself you know, your side of that street type of mentality. And I think there is a little bit of danger in that, like you're talking about. Well, there's also to bring, to conjure the PMC thing, even though PMC is not like the greatest, most perfect concept anyway, but like I could imagine you get some managers at a firm like using that language. And let's say they're even like recovered addicts and they're saying to their employees who are trying to collectively bargain for better conditions, like, listen, guys, we know you got it tough, but what's your side of the street here, right? Like it's kind of that same logic. If you, if you, if you look at it, if there's a, a power imbalance, that logic doesn't, you know, Jeff Bezos could be saying that to the thousands of workers trying to unionize Amazon right now. I'm just saying, like, look, guys, I know you want the air conditioners to actually work and you want the the PVE gear and yeah. you want better wages and benefits, but look at what you're doing. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't work. It doesn't work outside of the context of like I'm struggling with a severe addiction as an individual. Like once you're out of that mode. I think right. we do need more critical thinking. We do because it's also what's your side of the street? Well, you're on the street, it has two sides. So don't just stay on your side. Look across the street too. Not only across the street. And the idea in not including any of the social 
shapers of addiction is to stay politically safer on the one hand, but it also misses out on half the street. And I think that's Americans are just waking up to the idea that we're not going to get anywhere without each other, that we need each other. And AA and the other 12-step are in contradiction with the idea that it's just your responsibility. You need the group. Mm -hmm. And you need to go through the steps with a sponsor. You Mm -hmm. need each other. And the higher power, the component of the higher power, whatever you want to make it, but whatever you want to make it is your business, but what's made it by the organization is the higher power of doing it together, which is Mm -hmm. what the organization actually does. And I think there's a blindness to that in in sometimes the groups. They don't really see that happening, you know. Well, it's an ideological Mm -hmm. aberration in our culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and that's what we have to fight. I guess I when, if we were going to be like super journalisty interview questiony earlier, one of the ones that we had on the list was to ask you, um, Kevin, how like how sort of U.S. I don't know hegemony or like ideology has trickled down into the um, treatment um, well, models yeah. that we that we use, and now I'm kind of seeing just through instead of doing it mechanically asking you, we've sort of emerged there mm-hmm. uh, numerous times in our conversation. And that I'm, I'm starting to realize just now, I hadn't thought of it too much, but it actually is, um, although Harriet has said, I think accurately that there's a quote unquote communistic kind of element or ethos mm-hmm. to the 12 step model. There very much is that U S hegemony of like rugged individualism also that, um, you know, I don't think was meant to ever be, built into it. I think it was supposed to synthesize both. Like you're going to take personal responsibility and utilize the collective to like grow out of this problem you have, but it very often is like leaned far toward the individualistic mentality. while not actually, um, which is just inaccurate. Cause like you just said, Harriet, right? Like there's a sponsor, the sponsor had to get trained and do the steps through somebody else that you, without the group, you wouldn't even be able to have the conversation about the individual That's right. treating the, the problem. So, but I can, I can kind of see now too, how like the ideology has sort of trickled in even to 12 step groups, even if it was never meant to. It's an obvious contradiction that we yeah. need the group to do individual responsibility. Well, on the one hand, we are individually responsible. On the other hand, we are part of a group that influences us all the time, and we need their support. And those contradictions are what is in that triangle in liberation therapy. That yeah. there are personal things, but there are also cultural and socioeconomic things that have to be addressed. We can't stay within the personal just because it's much more um subsidized in our culture. One of the things is we are talking about how you have to commodify, decommodify the basic needs of life for a Mm -hmm. society, whether they're food or whether they're heat or whether they're water or whether they're um, temperature regulation or whether they're clean air, those have to be decommodified. And I think that in order for people not to look to an addiction to fulfill their need for experience and connection, 
we have to decommodify basic needs as a sort of preliminary, or at least we need- simultaneous push. And I think we need that. And I think the three of us are probably on this sort of path of trying to advance a movement. We're not sort of like vanguard leaders in a movement or anything, but I think trying to advance a movement within the mental health world to actually normalize that conversation idea and move toward um, effective activity that can actually make that reality, right? Because I think we're all in agreement that like, we can't just keep throwing quote unquote treatment at everything. It's like, it doesn't work. No, um, person isn't an isolate isn't an isolate. So we have to include yeah. other things as well. Yeah, right. And I guess just one last story, just on that topic. I actually, um, so um, Stan Peel's another one of those Stan uh, P E L E. If people want to look him up, he's been you know, kind of decrying a lot of these theories for a, a very long time. Um, he's wrote uh, Love and Addiction, Diseasing of America. Um, but I actually got an opportunity to try and work with him on kind of a pamphletizing of one of his books. And the first draft that I gave to him, he he came back and he said, this is really good, but we've got to cut out this political language. And in a way, I get it because you want to broaden up. You don't want to put a barrier up between somebody right. and some knowledge. You don't want to alienate people. Right. right. But I think what I'm really trying to do, and I just piggybacking and kind of validating what you're saying is what the right I'm trying to do is trying to include that language purposely because it, you can't separate the personal from the political. Right. So. That's right. That's a very good way to kind of summarize it all in our conversation today. So Kevin, we will put the the link to your series that as you said, is a 10 part series. It's you're on, I think the fifth, you're probably writing the sixth. Mm-hmm. Correct uh, from Madden America. We'll put it in the, in the description for listeners if they want to read your work. Do you have any other things you'd want to plug in terms of um, I don't know projects or, or uh, publications or anything that you want people to look into? So actually, just on that note, I'm I'm starting to build a website that's kind of a compendium of all of my writings and trying to you know kind of pull together some of these. Um, other alternative ways of seeing addiction. Uh, it's called existentialaddiction.com. Um, okay. Very bare bones right now. I'm just trying to get everything launched. Um, so basically a resource for um, the, the writing I've done, writing some other people have done, um, as well as some connections to harm reduction and other kinds of alternative groups um, that are out there. Um, so yeah, that's the other piece of that work that I'm doing right now. Good. That sounds exciting. Thank you so much, Kevin. Well, thank you for having me. I I really enjoyed this. Thank you again. By the way, listeners, if you have enjoyed anything you've heard Harriet say in this program, you will definitely enjoy Capitalism Hits Home, which is a solo program that Harriet does through Democracy at Work, which is a worker-owned cooperative that produces other great programs such as Economic Update with Richard Wolff and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles with David Harvey. I can't recommend enough that everyone also listen to Capitalism Hits Home if you enjoy It's Not Just in Your Head. Capitalism Hits Home is a sort of broader over overhead view. It explores the way that capitalism shapes our personal lives, our psyches, our relationships, our families, and it looks particularly at the sea change in American personal life as all Americans, but the top 10 or 20 percent of Americans, have our security and our chance for a future 
become as precarious as it always was for minorities and families headed by women. It's not just in your head, and capitalism hits home are definitely complementary. And if listeners would like to check out Capitalism Hits Home, Harriet, where should they go to find it? Either on YouTube or Democracy at Work or on my own website, harrietfraud.com.